All right. Uh, well, if you have your Bibles, let's turn to let's turn to Matthew chapter six. Uh, we're walking uh, through the Lord's Prayer, and hopefully, this has uh, encouraged you to pray more, and not just to pray more, but to pray the Lord's Prayer more. And we talked about uh, it was funny when we first started looking at this. This is the one prayer that Christians probably don't pray because we think this is just a prayer that that babies pray or it's the first prayer that you pray and then you move on to real prayers. Um, But Jesus here taught his grown, mature disciples, these followers that have been with him for years, this is how you pray. When you pray, say this. And so we've been walking through this prayer saying, you know, how can Jesus, how can Jesus teach everything that his disciples need to know? Everything that the people there on the Sermon of the Mount need to know. How can he teach all of what we need to know about prayer in a 10 second prayer? How is that possible? And so we looked, it's possible because when you, when you see the, what Jesus talked about in the Lord's Prayer, he used deep theologically and biblically rich words and truths so that when he said things like your kingdom come, all of his followers are thinking about the hundreds even of passages that they've read in the scriptures about the coming of the kingdom. Uh, When he says, you know, our father in heaven, they start thinking about all that that means. And that's what we're supposed to do as well. We're not just supposed to memorize the words and use it as some sort of Christian mantra. These are deep words filled with scripture. And so what are we doing? We're going back to the scriptures. We're seeing when Jesus said these things, what scriptures was he referencing? What truths was he expecting these people to already know or would he teach them about? Uh, And so that's what we've been doing. We've started walking through uh, this model prayer, seeing everything that you can learn from the Lord's prayer, just just even in the the addressing, who, who are we praying to or to whom are we praying? We're praying to our Father in heaven. And we looked at the, the things that we're supposed to ask our Father in heaven. So when you and I pray, we're praying to our Father in heaven. What sort of things do we ask? Uh, what sort of things do we pray for? And Jesus gave us these uh, this list of things to ask uh, our Father. And so we looked at the first thing, that his name would be hallowed. And we answered that question. What does it mean for something to be hallowed? It's not a word we often use, uh, except around maybe Renaissance fair time. Uh, so when, when do you use, what does hallow mean? Hallow just means to holify. It's the, it's the Greek word for holy, to make it holy. Make your name holy. Let your name be held, be seen uh, as holy. And now, so that was the first request. So what does Jesus want us to pray for? First thing he teaches us to ask the Father is that God's name would be holified, that it would be hallowed, uh, that, that God would be set apart from everything else and everyone else in this world. Uh, and the second request we've been looking at is that uh, the kingdom of our Father would come. Your kingdom come. So our Father in heaven, you know, your name be hallowed, your kingdom come. And so that's what we started looking at. What does it mean for God's kingdom to come and why as Christians would we want that? So we know we're supposed to be praying your kingdom come. Well, we need to know when we're praying that, what does that mean? So we want to make sure we understand when we say those words, Father, your kingdom come, what are we asking for? And then we want to know why are we asking for it? What is good and great about the kingdom uh, of our God? So let's read uh, the prayer again in its entirety, and then we'll look at your kingdom come. So let's stand together in the honor of God's word and just really thankful in our hearts that we have a model prayer here from Jesus, that Jesus lays out for us. When you pray, pray then like this. This is what you say. Uh, And so let's see how Jesus taught us to pray. Beginning in verse 9 of chapter 6, he says, Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for the guidance that we have in your word about how we're supposed to talk to you. We're thankful that we can talk to you at all. And we're thankful that we can talk to you not just as our God and not just as the Lord God, the King of heaven, but to be able to talk to you as our Father in heaven. And so, Father, we come to you today and we ask that you would teach us through your word. 
that you would speak as you have spoken and you have promised us that your word never returns void. And so, Father, as we pray this, this is another prayer we know you will answer. You will speak to your people and you will have your word achieve in us exactly what you want. And so, Father, we come here in faith, as we've looked at in Hebrews, faith, resting, trusting in you, and faith built on the work of our great high priest, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're praying. Uh, we're praying for the kingdom to come. That's the prayer that we're looking at this time, your kingdom come. That's the second thing we're supposed to be asking of the Lord. But why are we asking this? Why do we want this? We saw the, the, the revolutionary nature of this, that mankind since the beginning, since the garden really, has not wanted God to rule, has not bowed to the rule of God, has, has worked against and been the impetus against uh, the kingdom uh, of God. Uh, but, but so that even his own people uh, are sometimes the loudest voices against God's kingdom. Uh, even his own people say things like, we want a king like the nations, even though they're supposed to be nothing like the nations. Uh, and they're like, we want a king. Well, what type of king? Kind of like the nations. Uh, and so the, the idea that we're even praying this is revolutionary. You can be thankful if you want God's kingdom to come. You can rejoice. That's only true because of the work of the spirit in your heart. You and I would not want God's kingdom to come if God had not uh, already set up a kingdom in our hearts to long for the king and for his kingdom. Uh, and so we started looking at what's so great about the kingdom of our heavenly father. Why do we want the kingdom of our heavenly father? We saw two main reasons, two things that scripture focuses on when talking about the kingdom and why it's so great. The first is the who of the kingdom, that the kingdom is great because it is the kingdom of God that it is God who is going to be reigning. And we looked at all the reasons that God uh, is, is a king that we should want. We see that he's the, the great king. We saw his might. We saw uh, his power with that. We saw that he's the king of glory. Just all sorts of reasons that we should want God as king over us. Reasons we should say, we want you to reign, God. We want you to be in charge because there's no king like you. All the other kings of this world are just pretenders. They're just trying to be like you. There's no king uh, like you, perfect uh, in all that you are and in all that you do. So we saw, the, we saw the, the who of the kingdom. And now, starting last week, we started to look at the, the what of the kingdom. What is so great about the kingdom? The kingdom is great, not just because who is going to be ruling over it, but because of what kingdom he brings, because of what the kingdom will be like. And so we saw uh, last week, we saw the, the, that the kingdom is a kingdom of, of, of peace, of happiness, uh, of, 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 of salvation. We saw that it is a kingdom of, of righteousness, of, of justice, of uprightness. That Those are all reasons that we should want the kingdom. And then in that, not only is it those things, it's also a kingdom that will not pass away. So you get, you get, you get uh, peace, happiness, salvation, you get righteousness, justice, uprightness, and that forever and ever. Even the best kingdoms will pass away, but not the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of heaven. So to have everything, to have a perfect kingdom and to have it forever is a reason we should want that. A reason we should be saying, we want that kingdom because when that kingdom comes, it's never going to go away. It's never going to pass away. And we're going to look at a few reasons that it will never pass away. How do we know the kingdom is going to last forever? In some more descriptions of the kingdom, we see why we can be confident in the kingdom of God. Why we can, and, and what the kingdom is going to do, not just to exist, but to existence. Like what it's going to, how the kingdom impacts the current world. Uh, and so the first thing we're going to see uh, is that how can this kingdom be forever? It's going to be forever because it, it can't be overthrown. It is an indestructible kingdom. The kingdom of God is indestructible. So we know it lasts forever and ever. How can it last forever and ever? Because the kingdom of God is an indestructible kingdom. Daniel chapter 7 talks about this. Daniel chapter 7 verse 14. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. So it's kind of like we saw last week. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. One of, the things we, one of the things we mentioned, I think it was three weeks ago now, 
uh, was four weeks ago now, was the, was the revolutionary nature of this prayer, like we talked about. That, that the world historically has not wanted the kingdom to come. In fact, the world has worked against the king and his kingdom. So what surprisingly happens when the kingdom of God, when it comes, is it going to face rebellion? Yes, but it will not be destroyed. In fact, though the whole earth were to rage against the kingdom of heaven, that would not stop the kingdom of God. In fact, if you remember in Psalms 2, it tells us that, that even if the nations are raging and, and plotting, and so Psalms chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, it tells us even if the nations are, are raging and plotting, even if the, the, the kings of this world are working together against God's kingdom, God is not afraid. What does it say he does? He laughs. Why do the nations rage? The people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart, cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Why does God laugh at them raging against him and his anointed king, who's Christ? Why does he laugh? Because he knows they can't destroy his kingdom. They can't do anything. He holds them in derision. In other words, he's not up there going, man, I tell you what, I tell you what, Jesus and Michael, this is going to be a close one. It's really going to swing and hinge on, you know, how my followers handle it on earth and whether or not we're going to come out on top. That's this, this whole idea of this equal battle between good and evil. That's not what's going on. There's no threat to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is indestructible so that he can laugh if the whole world were to set itself up. If the, most, if the mightiest in the world, including the kings of this world, were to set themselves up, even they would be held in derision. Even then, he would just laugh because his kingdom cannot be destroyed. Jesus tells us in Matthew 16, 18, that the gates of hell cannot prevail against the kingdom. He says, and, I, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And then, you know, what he talks about to Peter in the, in the next verse, he tells Peter that he has given his disciples the keys of, guess what? The kingdom of heaven. Uh, so he's talking about the kingdom. He's talking about the church, the advancement of the kingdom and the way it advances through the church and in the world through the church. He says, look, the, the gates of hell are not going to be able to prevail against this kingdom and that's a that's an interesting verse there to mention uh i obviously thought that or i wouldn't put it in there right uh but but what what's interesting is is it it what does it say will not prevail against the kingdom what does it say won't prevail against the kingdom the gates of hell in, in other words it's not it's not an army of hell that won't prevail against the kingdom it's not troops of hell it's the gates of hell gates are not offensive weapons i don't know if you're if you watch a lot of war movies but they're not like all right it's time bring in the gates you know and it was like they're bringing the gates you know and no uh maybe in a siege you know you could just have gates all around it i don't know uh but gates are not offensive weapon gates are defensive weapons and so that leads us to our next point not only will the kingdom not be destroyed the kingdom of heaven is an undisputed kingdom it is an undisputed kingdom the gate the gates of hell aren't trying to beat the kingdom of heaven they're trying to stop it from beating them they're trying to hang on they're like, this is like digging toes into the sand. You throw up gates to stop the advancement of something. And the Bible, Jesus says, the gates of hell are not going to be able to prevail against it. You know, the most quoted Old Testament verse found in the New Testament? The most quoted Old Testament verse found in the New Testament is Psalm 110 verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And what happens, so this is talking to, to, to Christ, Christ sitting there, the kingdom's being made, uh, his enemies falling, being made his footstools. And with the kingdom coming, with the coming of the kingdom of heaven, 
those enemies will fall one by one. So in other words, one of the great things about the kingdom of heaven is not like we're going to have the kingdom of heaven and then next to it a kingdom that we're always going, oh no, is that, king, is it, is that kingdom about to come and, and when is that kingdom? The kingdom of heaven is undisputed. There's, there's no kingdom but the kingdom of heaven when the kingdom comes. It will not stop until it covers everything. And so uh, the, 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 and all of the enemies of the kingdom will fall. Some of them will fall willingly, the Bible says. Some of them will, will gladly fall before this kingdom. So look at Isaiah chapter 60. Uh, Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 through 5, and then we'll jump down to verses 10 and 11. It says, Arise, shine, For your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, thick darkness of peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar. Your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. Verse 10, foreigners shall build up your walls and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath, I struck you, but in my favor, I have had mercy upon you. Your gates shall be open continually. Day and night, they shall not be shut, that the people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. So here we have a, a promise to the kingdom of Israel that's never really fulfilled in that kingdom. They're all going, when's this going to happen? And it happens when, not, in, not, in, not for that nation, but when the kingdom of heaven comes, when the kingdom of heaven draws near, this is what God promises. So what do you see happen? You see the nations coming to this kingdom. You see kings coming, what does it say? To the beauty of the kingdom. And they're bringing their wealth with them. They're, they're, so, they're so enamored by the work that in verse 10, they start to, they start, you have kings laboring to build up the wall. I mean, think about how amazing that is. The kings come and then you have kings so in love with this kingdom that God has brought that even the kings of this world start to pick up hammers and work on its walls. In fact, there's so little fear of the nations, so little fear that the gates are open continually, it says, day and night. Why? Because unlike normal gates, the problem with the kingdom isn't going to be keeping people out. But how do you get them all in? And so Jesus describes it this way in Matthew 11. He says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by storm. Now, I've heard this passage misused so many times, so often, and I normally want to raise my hand, but it's normally on the radio so people won't notice. Uh, where people actually somehow turn this into a negative verse as if, as if the world has always been attacking the kingdom. And I always want to go, eh, you're kind of attacking the context of this verse. Uh, you kind of need to read it again because that's not how Jesus used it here. Jesus is saying that when John started preaching about the coming of the kingdom, that people started to flock to be a part of that kingdom, doing so almost violently, flinging themselves upon this hope. And you see that, right? That's why the Pharisees are freaking out. Uh, Not because people are trying to, besides them, trying to kill John the Baptist, but because everyone is going to John the Baptist. The whole world uh, seems to be coming to him and then eventually to to Christ. it's, it's It's more clear when you read this parallel passage in Luke 16. Luke records it this way in Luke 16, 16. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. So you can see, oh, that's what he meant by the violence. Remember, at this point in Jesus' ministry, what's going on? At this point, you've got tax collectors and sinners crowding to see Jesus. And they're so enthralled. I mean, remember, they're so enthralled with his kingdom that what do they want to make Jesus? king 
They want to make him king. Why do they want to make him king? Because he's told them about this kingdom, this kingdom that invites even sinners and tax collectors, and they've been shunned from every other aspect of the kingdom. So to hear about this, you've got sinners and tax collectors violently trying to get into the kingdom. Uh, the kingdom causes the, the nations to attack the gates. They want to tear open the gates, but not to destroy the city, but to be a part of it. But what about those who don't turn? Because there are those who don't turn to the king and to his kingdom. Isaiah tells us about that in Isaiah chapter 60, the passage we just read. We read down to verse 11, but verse 12 in Isaiah 60 tells us this, that those who don't turn to the king and to his kingdom, they will be smashed, crushed, destroyed this is why it's an undisputed kingdom because there's going to be many who will turn you're going to have you're going to have the nations flooding you have kings coming to the great beauty of this kingdom you've got opening the gates there's no fear this is undisputed champions tyson fury of the kingdom's world this is this is what's going on here and what does what does it say though happens in verse 12 because there are some who don't want to come who don't want to be a part you can think of the pharisees who as the nations were flocking as you've got sinners and tax collectors turning and repenting as they should have wanted them to do and they're trying to shut out that kingdom they don't like a kingdom that accepts sinners and tax collectors they don't want a part of that they want their own kingdom what happens when we want our own kingdom and we do not bow the knee what happens verse 12 for the nation and the kingdom I love that it's singular instead of plural it's interesting for the nation and the kingdom that will not serve you shall perish those nations shall be utterly laid waste what happens to the nations that do not flock to the kingdom they will find themselves destroyed perishing they will be utter wastelands in other words total defeat any kingdom any peoples that stands against and in the way of the kingdom what happens to them they are crushed this stone we're gonna go back to daniel this stone crushes them in fact in daniel 2 it says this daniel 2 verse 44 and in those day and then the days of those kings the god of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed nor shall the kingdom be left to another people it shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end and it shall stand forever so those nations that do not bow to the king those great and powerful nations that daniel talks about these epitomes of nations the things you read about in history class right these great nations what happens to them the kingdom crushes them they are broken to pieces, which happens very literally in, in, in Rome. So what do we have? We see that the, in the end, the kingdom is going to be undisputed. You have, you have all these other kingdoms, and the kingdoms will do one of two things. All the other kingdoms of this earth, so you have the kingdom of heaven coming. You have kingdoms on this earth. What are they going to do? Well, those that see the kingdom, many will turn and will see the beauty of that kingdom, and they'll take it violently, but not violently to destroy it, violently to get into it. And the kings will bring their wealth, and they'll be working on the walls to make it glorious. But those who don't, those who don't, they're nothing to be afraid of. They'll be destroyed. There'll be nothing left there but utter wasteland. No enemies to stand in the way of God's kingdom. Nothing to be afraid of. In the end, God's kingdom stands forever because there is no other kingdom to stand in its way. Kingdoms will either bow the knee or they will be broken. So it is indestructible, it is undisputed, and it is vast. It is a worldwide kingdom. The kingdom of God will cover the whole earth as waters cover the sea. Uh, this is a promise that we see multiple times in the Old Testament, and that's true geographically. I mean, just, just in a very literal sense, the kingdom of God will cover the earth. All of the land on this earth will be land that you go, 
That's the kingdoms. I don't know if you, you, when you live in Oklahoma, one of the most ridiculous and frustrating things you have to do is to get your land surveyed, right? And so you're trying to figure out where there should be a metal pin in the ground that shows me what land is mine. Where is that pin? I can't find the pin, but I can find a pin three lots over and then we can, and I'm like, this is how we determine what I own? This right here, there's a metal pin somewhere in this yard. Uh, I would have been mowing that spot in a delicate way if I'd have known that metal pin was so precious. Uh, and that, but that's not the case with the kingdom uh, uh, of God. We're not gonna be like, okay, God's kingdom. Now compare this to like the Garden of Eden, right? The Garden of Eden had specific dimensions, a specific place. It was within the bounds of these rivers and there was stuff to the east of it and the other stuff as well. Uh, and so, but that's not gonna be the case in the end with the kingdom of heaven. One of the great things about the kingdom that you're like, why should you want it to come? Because when the kingdom of God comes, it will cover the earth. And that's true geographically. It's all of... So Zechariah chapter 9, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. So you don't need your chariots anymore. You don't need your war horses. You don't need your battle bows. Uh, he's going to speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea. And from river to the ends of the earth. So here you've got this passage, you've got Zechariah, you've got the promise of a king coming on the donkey, all the things that Jesus says he was doing, triumphal entry, all of that. What kingdom is he going to bring? The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. This great kingdom that you want to come is a kingdom that will eventually go from sea to sea, covering the very ends of the earth. There's not one mountain, not one river, not one blade of, of grass that will not fall under the rain of the kingdom of heaven. Not one inch of creation that will not itself be bowed in subjection to the king. So the kingdom of heaven is worldwide. It's a worldwide kingdom in a literal sense. It covers the geography of the earth, sea to sea, even the ends of the earth. But it's also true ethnically. Not only will all of the places belong to the kingdom, all of the peoples will be the kingdoms. Daniel chapter 7, verse 14 uh, again, uh, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So in the kingdom of heaven, what do we have? We have all peoples, all nations, all languages serving the king. And just so we don't make this too general, it's, it's not just the you know, general idea of the nations, but then all the people that make up the nation, they don't want anything to do with it. It's not just the nations, right? So for example, America, America will only serve the kingdom when Americans serve the kingdom, right? It's not like America is going to serve the king, but all the people in it are like, I really don't want to. Uh, it's going to be true that not just the, the nation, not just the, not just the uh, political identity of the nation, but the people that make up the nation will serve the king as well. So you see this in Psalm 22. Psalm 22, verse 27 and 28. All the ends of the earth, so there we are pulling back Zechariah 9 uh, that we just read a moment ago. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. So you've got the ends of the earth, not just they're remembering, he's turning to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nation. Again, it's not just, it's not just the general nations, but rather the families that compose those nations. The families of the nations will be worshiping. So it's not, again, it's not just a political sense where this nation is proclaiming God as the one true Lord. This is, uh, this is a place to people uh, revival. And we, we realize this again, like we said, uh, America will not turn to the Lord until its people turn to the Lord. And it is families that make up our, of our nation. Jesus describes the worldwide nature of the kingdom of heaven in, in Matthew 13. Matthew 13, beginning of verse 31, he, he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven, so how is Jesus going to describe this kingdom of heaven? He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a, a grain of a mustard seed, just a grain that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds. 
But when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told him another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leaven. So, so the kingdom, Jesus says, those, those starting small, right? You could, a handful of people hiding in a room, it's pretty small. You talk about putting a, a grain of mustard seed in the ground, taking a few people, hiding them in an upper room where they're locking the doors. That's a pretty small start to a kingdom. Uh, no one walking into that room would have gone in and said, this is the kingdom that's going to take over the world right here. Uh, they, they'd have been like, ah, uh, how'd you get in? Um, so you, you, it starts out small. He says it's going to grow into a tree larger than all the other things in the garden. And, and, and so much vaster, uh, so much more vast, Uh, than all the other plants that this tree becomes big enough that birds can even nest in its branches. Not just sit in its branches, but build nests there. You can talk about all the aspects of, you know, generational progression in the kingdom and birds building nests in the kingdom and what all that means, but we're not in Matthew, so we won't do that yet. But it isn't just a big tree in the midst of a bunch of trees, is it? Because Jesus is going to make that clear. He says it's like tiny leaven that eventually spreads. So it's not like, it's not like the kingdom is just a, a big tree and you've got all these other flowers and plants that are, that are you know, let's make them tares so we can fit with biblical imagery. We've got all these tares that are making problems. He says the kingdom of heaven is like tiny leaven that eventually spreads until the entire loaf is leavened. The kingdom of heaven is growing until it surpasses all others in the garden. In fact, it's the kingdom of heaven is leavening the loaf. And so that's why we can say that the kingdom of heaven is a worldwide kingdom. It is vast. It covers geographically. It covers ethnically. That is per- it covers the places and the peoples of this earth until the kingdom of heaven covers everything, starting small, but eventually becoming a tree big enough to have birds nest in its branches. It starts out small bit of leaven that eventually leavens the whole loaf. So God's kingdom is indestructible. Uh, it's undisputed. It demolishes all the others. It's a worldwide kingdom. But God's kingdom isn't just advanced. And I started to put this in this, but I really like this point because I think it's just a great, uh, great point that Scripture makes. It's not just, the kingdom of heaven isn't just advancing geographically. It's not just advancing ethnically. It's not just taking the, the, the places and the peoples. The kingdom of heaven is also advancing spiritually. It is a kingdom. The next point is, it is a kingdom that, holifies everything okay it is a kingdom that makes everything holy this is the spirit it's not just it's not a kingdom that's taking over and you're bow, you bowing yes i'm bowing this is a kingdom that is changing the people not just on the outside it is changing the people on the inside and it is holifying not just the people it's holifying the people and the places it's holifying everything so as god's kingdom spreads not does it just spread the reign of the king it also spreads uh the the the, the character of the king So look at Zechariah 14. We saw Zechariah 9, the promise of this coming kingdom. Now Zechariah 14 is going to describe what happens when this kingdom has come. What's it going to look like for the earth? And on that day, this is so cool. This is such a great passage. Uh, On that day, there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them, and there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. So the the kingdom of God, when it comes, what does it do? The kingdom of God makes the common, makes the plain thing, things that... Things that would seem unimportant, right? Even the common things become holy. It sets them apart. Even the bells of the horses are going to have inscribed on them, holy to the Lord. Now, what does that mean? Why do we care that it says holy to the Lord? Well, as you all are very familiar with the Pentateuch, you know exactly what that's referencing when it says holy to the Lord. Where did that phrase come from? What did the high priest have engraved on their foreheads holy to 
the Lord. So think about it. So, so the high priest had that phrase, that one person from one family line in all of Israel would have that engraved, holy to the Lord. Now, holiness, because the kingdom has come, holiness is going to become so common that even the horses are going to wear those honored words. And remember all the special holy wares in the temple, all the things you read about, the, the basins and the pots, and you do this and you do that, and this one is this, and it's holy to the Lord, it's set apart. He says, now every pot and pan in Israel is going to be just as holy as the ones that sat in the holy of holies, every single one of them. Why? Because the kingdom has come. Every, not only does it, so everything in creation. I mean, if you've got the horses that are just as holy as the high priests, then you're saying the, the kingdom has certainly brought holy, the most common thing. The bells on your horses are going to be holy to the Lord, just like the high priest was. Every pot and pan in your home, just as holy as those that sat in the temple. He holifies everything. So again, we see it spreading not just geographically, not just ethnically. We see the holiness of the Lord changing the people. And, and, and so it doesn't, it doesn't even just purify those things. Just, it doesn't even just make the, these common things holy. It also purifies everyone. He holifies the people themselves and not just the people of Israel. In his kingdom, it says, there will be no Canaanite. I, I, that, that word there, and there shall no longer be a traitor. The, the word that they translate traitor there is just literally the word Canaanite. Um, like a, 200 other times that you're going to see it in your Bibles. It is, if you want to know what's the Hebrew word for it, it is the Hebrew word Kanani. It is the Hebrew word Canaanite. Uh, the idea being, so God's kingdom is going to purify. So what happened is they were, so often traitors that you just named traitors Canaanites and we don't want to get into the stereotyping and all that, but that's what they would, uh, that was the name they would be, the, that, but that's the word here. They're, they're Canaanites. So God's kingdom will purify even what would have been the most vile of peoples. So not only is it purifying the most common of products in the land, it is holifying the most vile, the, 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 I mean, if you think about it, in the history of scripture, these are the first enemies of the kingdom. The first people who stood in the way when the kingdom was the Canaanites. And they now become not enemies of the kingdom, they become its citizens so that there is no Canaanite anymore. That's why I love that verse in 1 Peter 5. If you remember, that's why I love what it's getting at in 1 Peter 5, 13. It seems like such a, such a meaningless verse, such a throwaway verse, but, but I don't think it is in the story of, of Scripture. 1 Peter 5, 13, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. So, so the, this is, I mean, if you know anything about the storyline of Babylon, from the, from the Tower of Babylon as the enemies of God to the exile uh, by the Babylonians, all the way up to Revelation, I mean, the, Babylon was a problem. Canaan was a problem. You, you're reading the, 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 the kings and the chronicles, and you're seeing the problem is the Canaanites and that you want to be like them and all this, and the idea that, that from, from Canaan to Babylon, the kingdom of heaven cannot be stopped. That not only does it conquer the kingdoms, it holifies its people. That even she who is at Babylon is likewise chosen. And this is, this is how, if you want to think about it, this is how those two prayers that we've seen, these first two prayers work together. Because it is the advancement of God's kingdom that accomplishes the hallowing of his name. So when we're saying, Father, let your name be hallowed, what advances the hallowing? What does he say all the way back in Zechariah is going to advance the hallowing? What's going to make it so that God's name will be hallowed even on the bells of the stinking horses? The advancement of his kingdom. 
So if you want God's name to be hallowed, if you want God's name to be holy, if you want it to be set apart, then what do you need to be praying? Father, your kingdom come. Because that hallowing, that holifying happens as his kingdom comes. What else is so great about this kingdom? The next thing is it is a kingdom ruled by his saints. Why would we want the kingdom to come? Because one of the great things about the kingdom is it's ruled by his people. So Daniel 7, uh, verse 18 and verse 27, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. So the kingdom is going to be given to the saints. No, no temporary kingdom. Even a thousand years worth of temporary. This kingdom is given to the saints forever and ever. They are the ones who reign over the dominions of the kingdom. So Jesus talks about this, uh, of this giving of the kingdom of the saints in Luke chapter 12. In Luke chapter 12, verse 32, he tells his disciples, Fear not, little flock, fear not, leaven, fear not, you know, mustard seed, uh, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. I mean, why do, so why do we want the kingdom to come? Because the kingdom comes not just to us, but for us. The, 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 the purpose that God gave us to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and have dominion. Remember, that's what he told us to do. Fill the earth and you have dominion. That, that purpose is one he accomplishes for us through the coming of his kingdom. A work that, that really he started all the way back in Genesis 12 with Abraham. Be fruitful, multiply, and have dominion. So God's kingdom is ruled by, so it's no wonder then, the last thing, so why is his kingdom so great? So when ruled by his saints, it's when he, he gives us and we serve finally as the image bearers that we are supposed to be in all of creation. And then, it, the, and then the last thing is, it's no wonder then that the Bible says that God's people long for this kingdom. God's people long for this kingdom. Jesus says this about uh, what believers are gonna think when they realize what the kingdom of heaven is, what are they going to think about that? In Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. When we realize how great the kingdom of heaven is, we will sell everything that this world has to offer in pursuit of it. There will be nothing that will stop us from not just praying for that kingdom to come, but pursuing that kingdom, selling everything that we have to, to, to get ourselves in that kingdom, taking it by violence in our own lives. But Jesus isn't giving some new message on the importance of the kingdom for believers or how much they're gonna like it. And they're like, oh, I didn't know we were gonna want the kingdom to come. In many of the passages of the kingdom, it talks about how desirous the kingdom is for God's people. So Isaiah 52, Isaiah 52, verse 7, which we looked at a while back, it says, how beautiful, last week, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. So the kingdom uh, is good news for God's people. So good that the feet of those who bring it are beautiful feet. I don't know if you know this, uh, but people who have just trekked across a mountain in sandals normally don't have the most beautiful of feet, but that's how beautiful they are. I mean, these, these dirt crusted feet are beautiful because they're bringing the good news of the kingdom. How about Zephaniah talking about the coming of the day of the Lord and the kingdom? He's going to bring Zephaniah 3, 14 and 15. It says, sing aloud. O daughter of Zion, shout, O Jerusalem, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. When we as Christians think about the kingdom of God and what it's going to accomplish, when we think that he has forgiven us, 
that he's taken away the judgments against us, when we realize that he has cleared away our enemies, when we realize that he has brought us peace and happiness and salvation, all the things that we saw earlier, then what, is, what are we going to do? It causes his people to shout, to sing, to rejoice. And it should cause us to pray, to ask, Father, let your kingdom come. And so let's do that right now. Let's take a moment. Let's bow our heads. Let's, we always want to respond to the word of God. And that's what we do here. This is our time of response. This is your invitation to respond to the word of God. You have heard from the Lord. You've all heard from the Lord, maybe in different ways. or probably all just different types of the same way. Seen the same texts. Seen the same truths. Let's ask, as a body of believers, let's ask that God's kingdom would come. And think about it. Think about how great this kingdom is. If we just walk through what we've seen, a kingdom of peace, of happiness, of salvation, a kingdom of righteousness, justice, uprightness, eternal, indestructible, undisputed, a, 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 a worldwide kingdom, vast, a kingdom that covers all people and places, a hallowed kingdom, and, and a hallowing one, one that is not only holy, but holifies everything. And all of that given to us through Christ. We get to be a part of that kingdom through the death of the king himself on our behalf. <laughs> I mean, how can, how can we not? How can we not be amazed by that kingdom? How can we not every day be longing and yearning for this kingdom to come? How can every prayer not be, Father, thank you for this food. Your kingdom come. You know, uh, you know, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. And your kingdom come. How can thy kingdom come not be a part of every prayer? Because it's going to bring so much of what our heart yearns for. So much that is broken in this world and broken in us. I guarantee you, if the bells of the horses are going to be holy, so are you. And if you feel like I'll never be holy, I'm supposed to be holy, it's bad. Pray that his kingdom would come because he's not going to holify the horses and not holify you. So pray this week, may your kingdom come. And Christian, Let's be living for that kingdom even now. Let's live as already citizens of that kingdom as it advances. May we be longing for it and may we be living for it. You, you cannot say that you want that kingdom while continuing to live in the kingdoms of this world. We cannot claim dual citizenship. We can't say, yeah, I'm living in the world, but I really want the kingdom. If you want the kingdom, then live as an outpost of that kingdom. Live as a piece of that kingdom, as part of the leaven that is leavening. You can't say the kingdom of heaven is your dream while investing all of your time in the kingdoms of this world. You mean you can't, I mean, you can't say you want the kingdom, oh, I want the kingdom to be, to be worldwide, but you won't walk across the street to tell your neighbor about it. Oh, I can't wait till the kingdom covers the earth. I mean, you can't even get it across that asphalt. It's not, even, it's, not even, it's not even great enough for you to say, I've just got to tell this person about it, whether or not I need to tell them because I love them or because I want the kingdom to advance. Shoot, we barely talk about the kingdom to our kids. We look at the amount of time we spend and all the things we talk to them about, things we make them do and, and, and whatever. I mean, how, how often are we like, now make sure that I'm going to make sure that you spend time thinking and you hear me talking about how great the kingdom is and living like it's great. Let them see that what reigns in your home is the king and his kingdom. 
You can't say you want the kingdom to make everything holy when you're not even working to holify your own life. When you're willing to sin in, in, in your heart toward, I mean, toward your wife or your husband or your church or just your life in general, whatever it is, and if you're willing to hold on to those sins, you don't, you don't want the world to be holy. And you don't even want you to be holy. Because if you even wanted you to be holy, you'd kill that sin. I think you couldn't. You can. In Christ, you can. You're willingly choosing to sin, to keep that sin. You can't say you want the world to be holy when you don't, you don't even want to holify your own life. And if we want God's kingdom to come, then we've got to take up our citizenship now. We've got to live like Abraham, live like we're wanting a different homeland. You want God's kingdom to come? We'd be, fo we'd be fools not to. Well, then look at your life. Is your life saying your kingdom come? If it's not, then quit being a fool. Start pursuing the kingdom. Start rejoicing in the kingdom and the fact that it has come in your life. Rejoice in that life that is yours through Christ, the kingdom that has come, I mean, to you, who has, should have no part of it. If it's not, quit being a fool. Live the right way. And if it is, if your life is saying your kingdom come, which I assume for most of us it will be, then take heart. That kingdom is coming. And look at what all is coming with it. And live in that hope, in that happiness, in that peace, in that salvation. Father, we come to you today and we just ask, Father, that your kingdom would come. And we rejoice that that kingdom has and is and will come. We rejoice that it is ours through Christ. That he has made us citizens of a kingdom we did not belong to. Not by the will of flesh or the will of man or by blood. It should not have been ours. And yet here we find ourselves today sitting in this place, worshiping you. Praying that your kingdom, and, and, and in our hearts, all of us longing for that kingdom to truly come. That's all through you, Father. That's all through your kingdom doing what it promised to do, holifying even us. Of, of course the bells of the horses can be holy. I mean, if you holified me, what is the harness of a horse? If you can make us holy, if you can turn us into vessels of honor, what are some pots and pans? And that's what you've done. And so, Father, may we glorify you. May we honor you as you have called us to do. May we live for our king and for his kingdom. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.